0: You're listening to The Sportsman's Nation, brought to you by Go Wild. Go Wild is one of the fastest-growing social media applications for your mobile device. It's an app, right? And uh, similar to Facebook or Instagram, it is a place for outdoor enthusiasts to meet and share their passion for the outdoors. So for more information, go to the Google Play Store or wherever you download your apps and download the Go Wild app. Or you can visit timetogowild.com for more information. Let's get outside. It's time to go wild. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles hunting podcast brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and on this podcast you will find tons of relevant information that will help you become more successful in the field. You'll hear product information directly from the manufacturer and success stories from guys and gals just like you. Sit back, relax, and pour a stiff drink. This episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast starts right now. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras for a $20 discount. Enter the discount code NINE FINGERS, that's the number nine followed by the word FINGERS, and you will save $20. off of your trail camera purchase now today's intro is going to be short but the podcast is going to be awesome because we're joined today by kip adams of the qdma and we're going to talk all about how whitetail survive these cold winters right uh specifically bucks you know after they lose up to 20 to 25 percent of their body weight and how their body changes and uh basically survives and adapts to these extreme cold weathers and large amounts of snow that a majority of the Midwest has been seeing uh, so far this winter. So that's what today's podcast is about. Really, really good information. Uh, It's just one of those the more you know type episodes and uh, I'm happy that uh, Kip was able to hop on the podcast and uh, chit chat with us today. Now, I've been using Ozonics for, oh man, it's I don't even know, right? It's been a while. And I can remember when that first uh, unit came out, it was about the size of a DVD player and it felt like I was carrying a brick around everywhere I went. But I started seeing results with it uh, in the tree and as that company kind of uh, has evolved over the past handful of years we see them come out with not just the different tree units right but the different you know in the field units but uh, some additional products that kind of work before and after the hunt as well and I'm talking specifically about the dry wash bag so I find that instead of having to wash my clothes all the time, I just love using that dry wash bag. And so it just saves me having to wash my clothes multiple times in a week. I used to be the guy who washed my clothes almost after every single hunt. I no longer do that. I let the ozone uh, do its work in the dry wash bag. And, uh, dude, I've, I feel very confident not only walking into the woods, but while I'm in the tree with an Ozonix. And I feel that being confident in the timber uh, is is a very important thing when it comes to chasing mature whitetails. So, uh, go to OzonixHunting.com. And if you do decide to purchase a unit, enter the discount code 9FINGERS. That's the number 9, followed by the word FINGERS. And you will be able to save, man, I I want to say... 10%. I think it was 10% off your purchase. And uh, I th- yeah, 10% off your purchase. So, uh, go ahead and uh, check out ozonixhunting.com, dude. If you if you haven't hunted with Ozone, you need to do it. It's uh, I feel it's a game changer, so take advantage of that uh, discount code. Now, enough talking. Let's get into today's uh, it's it's basically an informative podcast with kip adams of the qdma all right on the phone with me right now mr kip adam of the qdma how you doing i'm doing
1: good dan how are you doing today
0: can't complain it's the first day that i'm driving home from work and i didn't have to swerve a car that was going into the ditch so (laughs) the weather in iowa has been absolutely crazy i don't know what it's been like in pennsylvania
1: it has been crazy as well. So uh, for, it seems like about the last 12 months we've had some pretty crazy weather. So uh, well, I'm, I'm glad that you didn't end up in the ditch today or have to swerve and watch anybody else uh, end up in the ditch.
0: And, and that's part of the, the reason that I, I'm bringing you on the podcast today is to talk about this, these cold – you know, temperatures that we've been having, the, the crazy winter that we've been having, and how deer react to that. But before we get into the meat and potatoes of this podcast, how was your 2018 hunting season?
1: I had a great season then, and uh, I'm very lucky. Uh, I have a 12-year-old daughter and a nine-year-old son who uh, who are big time into hunting now. And, and at our hunting camp, we just have, we have a bunch of kids uh, there. So I have uh, three young nephews, uh, my best friend's young daughter. So uh I personally had a really good year because uh, my daughter shot a really nice uh, three-year-old nine-point buck uh, the first week of our archery season, so uh, that was great. Um, lots of the kids at our camp shot deer, um, so it makes it a, a ton of fun, and uh, I tend to do most of my hunting right here at home, uh, just because I travel so much during the year that uh, I want to be home and take my kids hunting. And uh, so, uh, But I did make one trip to North Dakota um, in, in early November to hunt with some friends, and uh, Got lucky enough to to shoot a very nice buck myself. So uh, overall, uh, it was a good year for for the Adams family. Uh, we're very lucky.
0: That's awesome. Is your hunt camp in Pennsylvania?
1: It is. It's literally a half mile from my house. Oh so, uh I can uh, be out my and I live in a very rural area, but I can be out my back door and literally to camp uh, in just a couple minutes. But uh, it's uh, it's across a, a creek and uh, it's secluded to the point where when, when you're at camp. You can't see any homes, you can't see anything except uh, woods and some fields, so uh, you feel like you're a lot farther away. And uh, given that it's so close, uh, we spend uh, a fair amount of time there, uh, which is a good thing.
0: That's awesome. It's always nice to have a tree stand so close to your front door.
1: That is for sure. Uh, I don't have one near my front door, but I do have uh, one uh, pretty close on my back door. (laughs) Right. So, (laughs) uh, yeah, that certainly makes it nice to... uh, to be able to get in if the kids get home from school a little bit later or something we can still uh jump in something real quick so uh, if, uh i'm glad there are still places like that in the country that uh we have an opportunity to live in
0: absolutely absolutely well, that's great uh how old let's see how many years have your kids been hunting with you
1: they have they have been hunting since for i don't know actually going along with me since they were i don't know two or three years old uh Actually, my daughter, I vividly remember her first hunt uh, was during bear season. We were uh, in Pennsylvania. It's very uh, common to, to put on drives for bear. So uh, her true first hunt was in a chest pack uh, as part of a bear <laughs> drive when she was, I don't know, about two or three years old. She was small. But uh, so uh, they have uh, they have gone with me since they were tiny, and uh, I have a strict rule here. Uh, even, and a lot of people find this crazy thinking, you know, because I'm a deer guy, but uh um, I, I firmly believe that, that uh, you know, deer hunting is not the best first-time hunt for kids. So uh, I've, I cut my teeth with small game, you know, and I, I learned to be a good woodsman hunting small game. So uh, I've uh, implemented a rule that my kids had to shoot some small game before uh, they could actually shoot a deer. You know, they go yeah. with me when I'm hunting, but uh, so uh, my daughter uh, tackled that quite easily with a spring turkey and some squirrels, and uh, that's actually where my son is right now. So uh, I uh, I'm firmly confident that's going to give them you know long term will be better uh, from a hunting end to, you know teach them to actually be a hunter and not just a shooter so uh, I uh, they've gone with me a bunch and uh, started sh- looking for squirrels uh, oh I'm not sure now maybe eight years old something like that I think gotcha. with my daughter somewhere around there so
0: gotcha. but, uh
1: it seems to work well for us anyway
0: yeah I'm excited for turkey season this year because my daughter is to the age where I feel like I can transport her, like she can walk a long enough distance to get to a turkey blind, and, you know, she'll be able to at least whisper uh, in in the blind and uh, get her, maybe not right away in the morning, getting them out of the roost, but maybe mid-morning, you know, afternoon, and I think that would be a great first step for her as far as hunting is concerned. I agree. How old is she? Uh, she's five. She's going to be six.
1: Nice. So, oh yes, you are going to have fun uh, in the woods with her. So, uh, yeah, that's a perfect age.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Now, like I said, this cold weather has been driving I know uh, us crazy as humans, but the deer actually have to live outside in it, and that's what I want to uh, talk to you about today. And I think the the best place to start is the rut. And I know that obviously the temperatures get colder up in the north part of the uh, United States than they do in the south. But let's just start with a kind of a high-level question. And I'll ask, what does the rut do to the deer? I, I guess, and I say that because I, we know it, it's probably a little bit harder on the bucks versus the does. But what does, what does the rut do to a deer's body?
1: Well, uh, you're right. There are big differences between bucks and does, and, and mostly because you know does will continue to feed through most of that, or at least they will try. You know, And, and they certainly get harassed and, and chased and all that, but they at least still continue to feed and try to add additional fat before uh, winter hits. and uh, And that's important because deer actually survive winter a lot like bears in that they are built to get as heavy as they can during the summer and fall, and then they live off that fat during the winter. So it's very important, you know, that they are putting on as much weight as they can before winter hits. So that's why even when those bucks are harassing does during the rut, man, they're still trying to eat as much as possible. Uh, from the buck side, it it is a testament to just how tough those they truly are because they know that they're going to, you know, live off this fat all winter. And yet, in many cases, you know, they'll go, you know, a month and, and eat almost nothing. It is amazing that that a buck can put itself through that. And uh, and then there's lots of studies that show that during that rut, you know, bucks can lose up to 20 or 25% of their body weight just because they are just covering so much ground, they are so active, and they're not replenishing those calories. So uh, the rut can be really, really hard on a buck's body.
0: Okay. Now, with that said, you know, once a deer loses, you know, 20, 25% of its body weight, uh, is that fat or is that a total of like fat and muscle
1: that's typically fat okay and uh at least hopefully that's fat hopefully they have put on enough tissue fat to lose that during the rut because if if they're already down to losing muscle before winter um there's no way they're going to make it so, right yeah so for the most part that's just all fat and and i'm sure that many of your listeners know gosh you know they shoot a deer or a buck uh, early in archery season You know, and there's just tons of back fat on them and layers of fat, and you shoot that same deer a couple months later, and, you know, man, there's not a whole lot there. So, it's it's a big difference, a really big difference.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so then, as the rut gets over, right, let's just say, you know, the last part of November, December, um, what are the deer doing or trying to do after the rut is over?
1: they're really going to try to, to put on some any bit of weight that they possibly can before they get into winter. And, and obviously in the southern part of the U.S. it's a little bit different because, you know, those deer just don't simply need to put that much fat on. But uh, anywhere at all where we have, you know, four solid seasons, cold weather and, and a definite winter, those deer are, are putting on fat. So, you know, and that, that's, a, that's a big difference between uh, deer in the south. But uh, anywhere in the north... You know, those bucks want to get anything they can to start adding some weight before we get into, you know, the, the throes of winter. And, uh, and they really do it two ways. One is that they will concentrate on highest quality food sources that they can, and they really start to reduce daily activity outside of feeding. You know, other than feeding, they just simply aren't doing a lot. So they're trying to combat it from two ways, as much intake as possible and expend as few calories as possible doing that. So uh, that helps uh, helps to try to not waste too many calories to try to to bulk up a little bit. Okay.
0: So I feel like this winter came early, especially, and I'm I'm just talking from an Iowa standpoint. We've we had two big snowstorms during November, and then eventually it thawed, right? And then we had additional you know december january even february this you know this really heavy snow we had a lot of ice and i feel like winter came earlier this year and the question is when winter does come earlier what do the deer have to do i guess that's extra to find food
1: it, uh, it really depends on um, what type of food sources that they're really keen on. And, uh, and it can change, Dan, if they are, for instance, where I am in northern Pennsylvania this year, we had a banner, uh red oak acorn crop. So uh, deer were hitting acorns really hard, even to the exclusion of ag fields and, and food plots. Um, you know, There was a lot of standing corn and soybeans and, and even brassicas that, uh, that just simply went uneaten, uneaten during November and, uh, and even December because there are so many acorns on the ground. So it depends a little bit on main food source that they are eating. And, the, and one thing that we have to remember is that deer are so much better equipped at dealing with a bad winter than, than we often give them credit for. So short periods of even really, really harsh weather um, really don't bother them that badly. Where they really get hurt is the extended periods, and particularly the extended periods of bad weather when they happen at the end of winter. And, and what I mean by that is I was very lucky to to go to graduate school at the University of New Hampshire and study under Dr. Peter Peekins. And uh, and Pete is one of uh, the world's foremost wildlife uh, energetics uh, professors. And uh, so while I was in graduate school, I got to do a lot of deer energetic studies where we looked at the amount of energy that deer were using to stay alive at different seasons based on you know temperatures and food sources and all that. And the long and the short of it is, essentially, in New Hampshire, we determined that an adult doe that was in good shape went into winter with about a 90-day fat supply. So most winters are not longer than 90 days, even if they are just terribly severe during parts of that. So uh, that let us know that, you know, these deer are so well-equipped in these northern environments that, you know, a week here or even a couple weeks there, Really doesn't kill that many, so uh, that was a good thing to know and uh, eases my mind a little bit when the weather turns really
0: bad. Okay, that's very interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I wasn't aware of that. That's cool. So this this weekend I went shed hunting, and the we had a major snowstorm, but we also had a lot of ice. And as I'm walking through this egg field, the all the food was under a like a large amount of ice and snow. So from a, from a, a, I guess a biological standpoint, do, are the deer able to kick up and hoof up ice, like stuff that's underneath ice, food that's underneath ice?
1: It it depends on how thick that ice is, but that ice can certainly make it hard for them to get to anything. And, uh, and ice also can make it hard for them to move quickly but at the same time, making it a little easier for coyotes especially to actually uh, go quicker. And uh, so uh, ice can be a double whammy for deer for sure.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So let's say we we run into one of these worst case scenarios, right, where we have an extended period of time. You know, uh, it's post-rut and either winter comes early or a combination of winter coming early and like, there's lots of heavy snow and cold temperatures. Once we get to the end of this 90-day fat supply and maybe, A, food starts running out or it's it's difficult for them to find it because it's under such, you know, large amounts of snow or ice, what is the deer, you know, what's their body doing?
1: That's a, that's a great question. Um, deer, as I said, enter winter with that fat supply. And what happens is once they get into winter— the idea then is let's save as much of this fat as we can, and they do that by reducing behavior. Now, there's an old myth that deer drop their metabolic rate during winter so they don't have to have as many calories to survive, and, and that, is, that is not true, and, uh, and that has been shown numerous times to not be true at my alma mater there at the, at the University of New Hampshire. Their, their metabolic rate during the winter is almost identical to what it is during summer, the big difference is they dramatically reduce their activity level. So deer are, are inactive most of the time during the winter, I meaning they're bedded, so they're not expending energy to move if they don't have to or to try to feed where there's low-quality food. So unlike during the summer where they're moving like crazy and they're growing antlers and feeding fawns, you know, fortunately none of that is happening in the winter. So uh, they survive it by just minimizing activity, minimizing the amount of calories that they expend and they get into little micro-climb or micro-environments that helps maintain body temperature. So they do that by getting in places where the wind is not as strong. So if you're in a, a forested area, they often get into a softwood cover, whether it's hemlock or spruce or fir or pine. So uh, the wind is not as heavy in there. That helps keep some of the snow out and the, the ambient temperature around them is, is a little nicer. Uh, If you're in a more open environment, that might be, you know, a native warm season grass stand. You know, wind does not blow through those uh, nearly as much as it does to just regular open fields. So uh, if there's a sun out at all, they can lay in there, be shaved from the wind, be soaking up that sun. So uh, they take advantage of any of that that they can to minimize calorie loss. And then uh, in many cases, they are using that fat. And, And this is why even in captivity, you know, you have captive deer, that uh, we'll lose weight during the winter, and it's just how deer evolved. Yeah. Uh, when I was uh, at the university, we would be feeding deer, and, and I don't remember the exact numbers, Dan, but say it was, you know, 500 pounds of food a day during the fall. We get to the winter, you know, that might drop to like, you know, 20 pounds of food, you know, for the entire deer herd. Feeders would be full, and uh, you know they lose weight during the winter. Because they're just built to get heavy and then live off that fat.
0: Gotcha. So it's not necessarily uh, the amount of food that's available; they just eat less during the winter months.
1: That's correct, and uh, they they survive winter by really the cover is the key to to, to winter survival. Gotcha. If we want to minimize the you know the bad weather on them, let them use that fat, and uh, and other research out of New Hampshire showed that. Uh, deer get a, almost half of their daily nutrition from that fat okay so that 's what they can get, so they get almost half of it each day from the fat and then can do that for about ninety days okay. so now now they still will eat, and I mean every deer hunter out there has seen deer eat during the winter if they can, and uh, many times you know they 're eating low quality food whether it 's you know buds off twigs or wherever they can, and part of that is just to they want to fill their stomach because one of the byproducts of digestion is heat. Yeah. So even though they have low-quality food that they're eating and they're not getting much out of it, by having it in their stomach, they can at least feel full. And as the stomach tries to digest it, heat is given off, which helps them maintain their body temperature so they don't have to use so much fat to do that. Gotcha. So
0: it's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. I would, I would think that a pregnant doe, because she's growing another life inside of her, would want to eat more calories throughout, you know, her, her pregnancy. It doesn't sound like that's the case, though.
1: That's exactly right. And the reason for that, and, and this is what, another reason that whitetails are so amazing, uh, deer tend, you know, breed in the fall in most cases. And the reason for that is because she has so little high-quality food to eat that she really couldn't support that pregnancy at that time. So deer put almost no energy into their pregnancy, until they're into the third trimester so deer gestation is about 200 days so the first 130 to 140 days they put almost nothing into it which makes sense because at that time of the year there's really nothing out there for them to eat that yeah. good to allow them to do it so almost all of that fetal growth and all of the energy into that uh, pregnancy occurs in the last trimester and what's amazing is that last trimester almost always occurs right at about spring green-up is when it starts. Right. So it allows that doe to maintain pregnancy at a time, you know, when she's not getting anything good, and then, you know, really pull the coal to the fire once things green up, and then she's able to get some high-quality food again.
0: And then what, what time typically do the uh, uh, the the most, I guess the majority of dro- uh, does drop?
1: It uh, Depending on, obviously, where you are, but for most of the northern United States, you know those fawns are hitting the ground hard toward the end of May and then in early June. Okay. So uh, you know that that correlates very well with you know cover on the ground to hide those fawns and and uh, and food on the ground to feed that doe so that she can produce a bunch of high quality milk.
0: Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Okay. I, I just you know this thought popped into my head that why wouldn't the rut be later or closer to spring? But then, you know, and then I'm, then I'm thinking, okay, well, that means it's winter, right? And, and that, I don't know, I just, I just would think that the rut would be closer to the time that the deer drop if there is this delay and a majority of the, the fetal growth is during the third trimester. But that's just me thinking out loud.
1: No, and you're right on with that. And there's actually a fine line where those fawns want to hit the ground as soon as they can in the spring, when there's good cover on the ground, like you don't want to hit the ground too early, you know, if there's no cover or no food. But you don't want to hit it too late because then you minimize the time that you can grow until winter. So uh, it, uh, that fine line ends up being, you know, in that late May, early June time, which corresponds perfectly with that mid-November rut. So, and, you know, and that's why all the talk about, you know, uh, the moon phase in the fall and how that drives the rut. Um, you know, moon phase may have an impact on deer movement patterns but you know but it's very clear it does not have any impact on actual breeding days yeah. you know and this is why because some years you know that that harvest moon in the fall or that rutting moon occurs you know in you know a month earlier than mid-november and if that's the case you know we'd have most of our fawns hitting the ground a month sooner and i mean that that just would mortality rates would skyrocket then because you know the, the, or just not ready for it then. So it, right. that's, that's one of the reasons that it is so consistent from year to year. Uh, it has to be, or those fawns just simply wouldn't survive.
0: Right. So right now, you know, the buzzword is shed hunting. Everybody's starting to get ramped up to go look for sheds, and uh, I've already found one this year. My question is, does the harshness of winter impact when a deer will drop its antlers?
1: Certainly can, and um, deer are are pretty consistent from year to year when they drop, or at least, you know, deer as a a population. Now, individual bucks may go earlier because they're injured or something, but, you know, a bunch of bucks dropping the Rantlers in an area, you know, it's pretty consistent from year to year, so if you start seeing much deviation from that, then it's obviously because something is impacting that deer herd. And if they're dropping a bunch early, like we saw this past year, there was a lot of places in Pennsylvania, New York, uh, Missouri, Illinois, um, that I have talked to numerous people where, ooh, we had a lot of antlers on the ground early. Um, that's some type of stressor on that deer herd. Um, in many cases, it's nutritional stress, um, but not always. There might be other environmental stress from really bad weather. Um, in some cases, it's social stress just from way too many deer and in a confined area. So, But at least we know for sure it's a stress to that deer herd that's negatively impacting those deer and it's causing them to drop early
0: yeah and that's that's interesting because i got a buddy who or a friend who is a deer farmer right he he runs uh uh, a deer farm and he says that if he wants antlers to fall off sometime about late february early march he will cut their food source off for about four or five days and he says with you know they're in such a routine; they get so much food, and then all of a sudden, that food stops. And he says, almost without a doubt, a majority of all those deer will shed in that in that one period of time because mm. because of the food source being cut off.
1: Very interesting. Yeah, so, uh, it, it is. Isn't it amazing how uh, consistent they can be across a herd like that? Right. So, uh, pretty cool. Right. That's cool information.
0: Yeah. So, when when the temperatures start to drop right because thermal thermal covers really great but is there because i guess what i'm what i'm getting at is in iowa we had these you know negative 50 wind chill temperatures for a handful of you know for a handful of days but up in the you know northern canada i guess the northernmost portion of the the whitetails range I guess, negative 50 is probably more normal yet the herd survives up there so other than you know reducing their intake and getting a full belly off not not so much i guess that uh, what did you what was the term for the food like not the best kind of food that they had just, yeah, just low quality, yeah, low quality. And, yeah. yeah what what other things do deer do to try to survive cold temperatures
1: well, they, uh, they can get some of the, the water that they need out of the, the food that they're eating. Um, however, when they're eating that real low-quality stuff that's very dry, you know, then there's very little moisture in it. So some of the other you know, physiological things they do, they actually can dry their feces out to recycle that water internally. Um, they can take the, uh, the heated digestion that I talked about to maintain body temperature. They will stand their hair on end, and, uh, and deer's hair is, is very specialized in that it's hollow, and then uh, when they stand it, they can actually then trap more warm air at the base of those hairs uh, to, to maintain body temperature. Uh, they often will group up. They follow the same trails so that they're not coming to break trail through snow, um, and they, they literally can go extended periods of time, you know, with very, very little movement. Um, you know, they're just just simply not going to waste energy unless they are chased by, you know, a predator or a snowmobile or a shed hunter or something like that. Uh, they just literally kick back. They haven't shut their systems down, but they're just kicking back, kind of on autopilot, and just waiting out those really bad storms. They find the most uh, the best place to get out of that weather, and then uh, just kind of hunker down and uh, and make do till it improves.
0: Right. All right. So let's say you live in an area that has a a very harsh winter what are some indicators like just from visually that you can look at a deer or look at a deer herd and say they're they're really struggling right now
1: some of the the visual things it's hard to tell with deer um, until you get later in the winter And, and what i mean by that is i when i was in new hampshire uh working for uh, the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department, we did deer winter yard checks, you know, all winter long, where we going into these areas, we call them deer yards or winter yards, where deer literally would migrate into these conifer stands and, uh, you know, spend the winters in these, you know, big areas where just snow depth was, was a lot less. So we searched these, you know, every day we would go and look and get ideas of numbers of deer using them, and, you know, did they have any type of browse available? Um, were we finding dead deer in them? And so, you know, most of the winter, you could visually look at deer, you know, see them, and uh, you know, just not really tell that they were in bad shape, you know, until you got your hands on them. Like, you know, say late February, you look at a deer and think, man, it doesn't look all that bad. But then if something happened, it got eaten by a coyote or hit by a car or something. You put your hands on it, you realize, wow, this thing is skin and bones. You know, you couldn't see that because they're so good at hiding it. But uh, so it's it's amazing how well they can hide how skinny they're getting um, through at least through february once you get into march end of february beginning of march then if they're getting kind of close to the end of their fat supply then you can start really seeing it visually but other than that by looking at deer um, you really can't tell uh, how bad they are gotcha
0: so is it ever a good idea now when i say this i I don't plant food plots because I don't have the ability to, right? I don't own property. I don't have the ability to plant food plots. Um, I do live in a heavy ag area, but let's just say that the combines are really efficient, right? And the the deer have already went through their food source. Is it a good idea for us to get involved with that and start supplementing their food sources?
1: Winter feeding programs can be really harsh on deer and the reason for that is deer's stomachs are built to handle a lot of different types of food sources and they have to have specific uh, micro uh, flora in their stomach to digest a new food source so what that means is anytime they start eating something new they literally have to eat it for one to two weeks before they get all their stomach organisms changed over to really be able to draw the nutrition from it so that's why you know one of the worst things we can do for deer is, you know, now we're into winter. They're eating browse and low-quality food. Um, all of a sudden, we're into February. Ooh, I feel bad for the deer. I'm going to go feed them some corn. So they start dumping bags of corn, you know, a real high-energy food, um, something that's way higher quality than what deer have been eating. And uh, it literally can shock a deer's system. And since they have to eat that for a couple of weeks before they can get anything out of it, um, it, in the worst or the extreme cases, it can kill deer. Um, so what I tell people is starting feeding, and if you're going to feed deer, the way to do it is start in the fall <laughs> when deer don't need it, start slowly, let, you know, increase the amount, and then continue feeding all the way to green up. Let deer stop coming to that food source. The worst thing we possibly can do is start feeding corn or something in the middle of winter once deer are already in bad shape. Gotcha. So, uh that's that's almost never a good idea, and in many cases, we end up hurting deer a lot more than we help them. Wow,
0: that's uh, that's good to know because I, in the past, uh, to get an inventory of of what deer have shed, I used to drop a ton of corn out in you know random spots, put a trail camera over it to you know, okay, check my trail cameras. Looks like they're shedding. It's time to go after them, but it doesn't sound like that's uh the best thing to do.
1: If it's not a harsh winter and they're you know doing okay anyway, that's probably not making a bit of difference at all. Gotcha. Uh, if it is a really hard winter and deer are really hard up, that's the time, Dan, that that, that could that could really hurt them. Gotcha. What what I tell folks is, if you have any ability to uh, you know, to forested areas, um, you know, you can cut browse for deer or you know do some TSI in the woods and cut down some of the subdominant trees. That is a perfect way to feed deer this time of year because it's very natural. It's something that deer are used to eating anyway, and then, you know, you're not running the risk of shocking their system with this real high-energy food. Now, now not everybody has that opportunity, but if you do, and if you're going to do some, some TSI work in a timber area anyway, man, winter is the perfect time to do it because you get the work done, and then you're feeding deer at exactly the same time, so you get a win-win out of it. Gotcha.
0: All right, so now for the people who maybe lease ground or have the ability to do, you know, manipulation to the habitat, what are some of the best things, you know, you mentioned a couple of them already, but what are some other really good things that we can do to improve their environment to help them survive harsh winters?
1: Well, um, I always make sure uh, going into winter that that, uh, the deer have a really good place on our property with some thermal cover or some of the softwood stands to a place where the snow won't be as deep and they're protected from the wind so uh, you know that's before you get to winter making sure you have some of that available um i also always like to make sure that i have some brows that i can cut and i'm going to do some of the the timber work in the winter and uh, and we have done a bunch of that on our place here over the last month um just to make sure that yes deer have lots of, of brows not high quality that's completely fine though they're filling their stomach they're eating they have good access to it and it's nice Dan, if you can provide some of that browse really close to where those conifer stands are you know so if the snow does get deep deer aren't having to travel a long ways you know to get to where they can actually eat um, so one other thing that people often don't think of that is a big deal is too is that i make sure that like i don't pressure the deer during real severe times so uh, I love to shed hunt too, but, but I hold off a little bit yeah. so that I'm not out there, you know, kicking them up out of those those bedding areas or, or making them run and expend additional energy. Um, so there's some little things like that that we can do to just make sure that deer have an opportunity to relax and not be pressured by dogs or, or snowmobiles or, or shed hunters or anything like that, you know, during this most critical time of year.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, now, as far as, you know, how deer react to cold weather, is there any other uh, unique information, facts, or anything that you'd like to share?
1: Yeah, um, deer are so much better adept at dealing with that than we are, um, which, which is a good thing because they've obviously survived some really harsh environments for a long time. But uh, But that doesn't mean that, you know, from a management end, there's not things we can do. And the stuff that I just talked about kind of is, works well, like once we get into winter, but hopefully people who have any opportunity to manage a deer herd or certainly that habitat, um, think about the best thing we can do to help deer survive winter is to make sure that we get them into winter as fat as possible. And and we do that through, you know, habitat work, but also through trigger work. And, uh, you know, there's there's folks, I you know, that want to carry as many deer as possible and push the envelope a little bit and, maybe carry more deer than the habitat really should have, that is when deer really end up suffering during the winter and especially during a harsh winter. So, uh, you know, we can help deer in winter by what we do during the, the hunting season before, um, making sure that there's not too many mouths to feed out there with regard uh, to the number of groceries available.
0: Gotcha. All right. Well, I tell you what, Kip, uh, I really appreciate you hopping on the podcast today and chatting with us. Um, any Anything uh, new and exciting uh, from the QDMA standpoint that you'd like to share with us?
1: Um, I, I tell you, actually, uh, two things, Dan, that we are doing that I am super excited about. Uh, one of them is uh, regards to venison donation. And uh, you know, as hunters, uh, only about 5% of the, the U.S. population buys a hunt license. So uh, you'll hear people say it's my God-given right to hunt, and I'll always be able to do it. And man, I wish that was true, but uh, it's not. You know, we, we don't get to do anything because five percent of the, the country wants it or does it. Uh, fortunately, though, about three quarters of our country supports hunting, and uh, so it's important for us as hunters to make sure that we portray a good public image and you know and, and just look like responsible uh, uh, individuals. And from a venison standpoint and a venison donation standpoint, man, there's a lot of needy families out there. And if you take a look each year at the number of deer that get shot in the U.S., uh, it provides over a billion wholesome meals. And I know that the Adams family, uh, and that, that's Adams family with one D, uh, not, the, not the two Ds and Adams, The one D. We eat a lot of venison here, but we give a lot away to, to family and friends, and, and we share it with folks. So a lot of hunters are just like us. But, you know, we don't tell that story very much, so I always encourage hunters, you know, let folks know that, you know, you're, you're helping feed needy families. You're sharing this venison. So at QDMA, we have one of our, our new five-year goals is that we're going to have QDMA members. We've pledged that just our membership will share 20 million venison meals during wow. the next five years. That means a prepared meal. I've cooked it. I, love, I have you over, and, you know, we're sharing it with you. Um, and our members are going to donate another forty million venison meals. And That's you know I'm giving you a package of burger or taking some burger or, you know down to the, the local church or so. Uh, Tell people you know there is not a better way to portray a good public image of hunters and, uh, and help a needy family. So uh, so many hunters do this anyway. So we're encouraging hunters to uh, do it even a little more, and then make sure that we talk about it. You know, so we let the non-hunting public know about this free service that hunters are providing and, uh, and all the good we're doing. And that just helps us portray a better public image and make sure that we can hunt, uh, you know, according to the public eye, a lot longer into the future. So I am super proud that, uh, that we're doing that at QDMA.
0: That's awesome. That's a, that's a big thing too. So, uh, I, I love to hear, I love to hear what the organization's doing and, and who, who they're supporting. And, uh, I don't know, um, anything else before we split,
1: I think that's good. I wish uh, everybody listening a good shed hunting season, and uh, I hope uh, they've learned a little bit about uh, what they can do for deer and and maybe how to to keep deer a little bit safe and not not pressure them at at harsh times. And uh, I certainly wish everybody uh, good luck in the woods this fall.
0: And there you have it. Ladies and gentlemen, we are done with another Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Huge shout out to Kip for taking time to hop on the podcast and share his wealth of knowledge today. Really appreciate that. Huge shout out to all of you who have taken time out of your day to download and listen. Huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast. Exodus, Ozonix, Wasp, Lone Wolf, Deer Lab, Prime, Ripcord, Hunter Safety Systems, One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. That's it. If it wasn't for those guys, this podcast wouldn't be happening. So I tell you what, man, uh, go out and support those companies because they support this podcast. Other than that, if you want to download this podcast, please, 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 uh, subscribe right go to itunes leave a review follow us on social instagram facebook and uh other than that man um if you're it's that time of year where we're starting to do some postseason work so if you're going to be in a tree maybe uh, doing some early season uh tree trimming type uh, activities when there's no leaves on the trees or you're going to be moving stands or taking stands down please be safe and wear your damn safety harness have a good week